in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is your other host and my good friend from the great state of Washington, Brian Fry. How you doing, Brian? I'm doing well. Good evening to everybody. People are going to be pretty excited because they're going to get two Brian's for the price of one. So whatever you paid, you're getting two Brian's for that price. So we also have Brian Reynolds with us. Brian, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. And it's great to have a first time guest on. Now, Brian, let's get you a little more acquainted here. What is the last movie you saw? I think the last one that I really saw was Knives Out. And if you're if you're talking about uh, in a theater, I'd have to thank you for that. Probably the last Star Wars movie, uh, Rise of Skywalker. Now we're doing a little bit of science fiction today. So did you like Rise of Skywalker, or are you upset by it? Because it's a polarizing movie. I accept it. I it, I wasn't upset with it. I think they took a lot of chances in it, and I think it, it it's okay. It's one of those you know when you build up a trilogy, and then wait you know, 30 some years to, to flesh it out. You're never going to meet that kind of demand. No, that's a hundred percent true. Expectations are always set high for that. So, right. Yeah. Now, what is a first movie theater memory that you have? I can remember seeing ET and that, that would have made me about three years old. Maybe I do kind of remember seeing return of the Jedi, which would have been around age four. And then I really have vivid memories of seeing, um, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom uh, when I was about five. Wow, these are all stellar movies. Uh, I can remember just, you know, wide-eyed watching Temple of Doom. It's not exactly, you know, five-year-old uh, fodder to watch, but it, it was a wild ride, that was for sure. Yeah, those are all excellent, excellent movies. Uh, do you only watch, like, amazing movies? Or did you, what was it like when you first saw one that wasn't as good? You're like, what is this? You know, I could probably tell you one that was lame that you probably have never heard of. It's called Baby. And it was about a dinosaur that, that was found in South America or Africa. And it was like animatronic. I've, I've only seen it in the theater. I've seen pictures of it online since then. It's something that I never even saw on TV. It was so bad. Okay. Don't watch Baby then. All right. We'll make sure... Uh... If you uh, are in the movie rental uh, story, pass off Baby and then go to Baby Driver. <laughs> Talk about a dated statement, Russ. <laughs> I was going to follow that up by also I want to know where your video rental store is because I miss it very badly. <laughs> hey, we still have music and used movie stores in the meantime. So those are that's that's there. Whenever those shut down, I'll be I'll be a sad, sad guy at that day. So now, Brian, what is your favorite movie alien? It's really tough to pick one. And, and though I really like the movie Alien, and I think the alien in the film is, is probably one of the best designed, I think my favorite is still going to be John Carpenter's The Thing. Oh, so good. Uh, when you have an alien well that said. can morph or assimilate into anything, 
that it's ever seen. That's that's pretty cool to me. I can remember seeing that when I wasn't supposed to when I was little, and that it kind of burned in my brain. As an idea, probably John Carpenter is the thing, but as an actual physical, you know, un- unchanging alien, I would have to definitely uh, say alien. Okay, the xenomorph from Alien. Those are great choices. Brian, have I asked you this one before? Well, I was just thinking about it, and although I love the Thing pick because that's one of my favorite movies, I wanted to kind of be sarcastic and say Paul, but if I'm really thinking about it, the one that creeped me out the earliest, I think, was the also shape-shifting alien bounty hunter from the original X-Files. If you guys remember that guy, I just remember being like, oh my god, they could be anybody. (laughs) So, yeah, I, w- I would have to say seriously, probably the shape-shifting bounty hunter alien from X-Files. There are just so many to choose from at that point. Yeah. I think I'm going to go Yoda. Oh, solid. Yeah. What movie are we doing today? Because I think we kind of alluded to it. Uh, I believe it's Alien. <laughs> just to see how many times we can say it. Yes. Uh, this movie comes out in 1979. It grosses $78.9 million domestically. It's made for only a budget of around $11 million, I think that is. It places in the box office at fifth on the year, so strong showing. And uh, the movie that places ahead of it is Star Trek The Motion Picture. And the movie that places behind it is Apocalypse Now. If you're wondering what the number one movie that year was, it was Superman. And IMDb gives Alien an 8.4. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes give it a 97 fresh percent, which is really strong. And the audience score a little bit behind them at 94 percent, still strong. It wins the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. And uh, it was also an Academy Award nomination for Best Art Direction. It's a Golden Globes winner for Best Score. It takes three nominations away at the British BAFTAs. uh, So Best Costume Design, Best Editing, Best Supporting Actor for John Hurt. And uh, as well, sorry, another one, a most promising newcomer for leading role for Sigourney Weaver. So there were four of those. Didn't win any of them, uh, but it did win three Saturn Awards for Best Science Fiction Film, Best Director for Ridley Scott, and Best Supporting Actress for Veronica Cartwright. So a little more accolades. AFI, the American Film Institute, rates this number six on AFI's top 100 thrills movies. So extremely high praise there. Surprisingly, number six on the thrills list doesn't get you on the top 100 at all, which is disappointing. But they are number seven on AFI's top 10 science fiction films. And I didn't read that wrong. So on a top 100 thrill movies, meaning very open to action and all kinds of genres, thrillers, suspense, they're number six on that one. But only science fiction, they falls to number seven. AFI, I got to say, seems a little inconsistent. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Brian Reynolds, how, what's your history with this movie? Obviously, you've seen it before, but what was your first time seeing it? And what was it like? It's kind of strange. I actually saw Aliens first. It wasn't until three or four years later that I actually saw the first one. But I did see it back when I was about 12 or 13. It left a pretty good impression. Of course, Aliens leaves a good impression as well. I've seen it. Um, It's a movie that I think is really good, but I actually haven't watched it very many times. It's not one that I would sit and watch over and over, but it it is, you know, anytime you watch it, it it does uh, perform. And hold up. Now I saw it in order. What is it like to see the second one first and then and then go back and see the first one? Because they're kind of a different tone. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why I didn't watch it a lot. You know, Aliens is a very high octane action and war war type movie. Uh, whereas Alien is more of the slow burn, you know. It's a very big build up. And at a younger age it's probably a little too slow. But uh, yeah, I think it holds up really well. 
Yeah. Needless to say, uh, Alien 3 or Alien 3 was, uh, was a disappointment by the time you got to that point, I'm sure. I can actually remember seeing Alien 3 in the theater. And it was such a strange flavor compared to the other two. It is. And it, and it had that disappointing ending. You're just like, uh, what? I didn't hate Alien 3 as much as everyone else did. It's clearly, it, for me, it's the worst in the franchise. But that's like saying it's the last a little bit too crunchy French fry at the bottom of the pack. Like, it's still a French fry. I'm still going to eat it. So um, I guess like some other franchises, just being able to put that name on it uh, is take my money. <laughs> when you went back to it uh now what was it like to come back to it because you said you hadn't seen it a lot over the years is it holding up well for you and it went by a lot faster than i was expecting it to literally it's probably been 15 years maybe since i've actually sat and watched it it was kind of like getting to see it with a little bit of a, a fresh perspective i kind of remember you know you kind of remember the key scenes but i couldn't remember what order some of them fell into but yeah i really enjoyed it it still holds up to me and i think you know the accolades that you you talked about i think are all fair. Now, Fry, you said you're a fan of this franchise. What is it like at the very first movie, the very first time that you see this movie? Where are you? What's your history with it? I don't remember the first time I saw this movie. It's just something that I've had for a very long time. I'm sure it was probably DVD at John's house or HBO. It, it actually might have been in Indianapolis. I think my stepdad had this. So at some point in time, I saw it. and I remember just being super stoked like there could not have been a cooler science fiction like it's it's a jump out at you kind of horror film like more of a startle you rather than haunt your dreams forever so kind of dug that aspect of it i loved how menacing it was that you never really got a good look at it until much later there's so many aspects of this movie i dug and this is definitely a uh Oh, I'm bored. What should I do? Well, let's watch Alien. Absolutely. And what's it like coming back to it now? Holding up well for you? Oh, absolutely. This is this is a anytime, you know, if I catch it on TV, I'll watch it, that sort of thing. I think this is one of the movies that I probably have in in several different varieties. I do remember buying the quote final box set. You know, they're always putting those out there to be like, oh, this is going to be the last one. This is all of them. And then they you know, drop another Covenant movie. And I was like, ah, hate it when you guys do this. Uh, yeah, sign me up, whole franchise. For me, I got to this one a little bit later than some of my friends. I remember being in elementary school and people talking about it. I had toys, oddly enough. I could have the toys, but I couldn't see the movie. So I had like the xenomorph that like spit, squirt water and stuff out of its head. But I didn't actually get to see the movie. Probably it fell off my radar in junior high. So I didn't get to it until high school. I saw Alien. Loved it. And then I saw Aliens. And for whatever reason, shortly thereafter, because I, I I had to see that after this. And I fell in love with that so much. And to your point, Brian, I it, the pacing did go down for me better, especially as a teenager. And I, I went around for years just having this like, you know what sequels better than the original? Aliens. And it's not a it's not a contested argument and you can have it because they're both really good. I went back in college. I want to say I went back to Alien. And since then, I've picked it up every two or three years or something like that. And it's one of those ones where I the craft of the movie is so good. And I appreciate that fear of the unknown that's in this movie 
to what Brian was saying. It's just very masterfully made. And uh, Aliens is still a movie I love, but I've I've actually done a 180. I have come to love Alien more. And in terms of the last time I saw it, I actually just had two of my friends uh, over at the house who one of them had never seen it before. And we totally enjoyed watching it. Grant was sleeping on my chest the whole time. And it's a horrible idea with a baby to have people over in the middle of the day to watch a movie at your house. But uh, we totally got away with it. And he was a total good man and just <laughs> slept the whole time on my chest. Got away with it this time. But Alien to me, it, it is 100% deserving of this. I have my own science fiction movie countdown. It's in my top 10. I have it ranked at number nine. So I love it. And it's one of those movies that I don't go too long without playing. So I'm super excited to get into this. Knowing that, though, there's going to be spoilers that lie ahead. So if you haven't seen the movie Alien, go check it out. We'll, we'll come back and we'll talk about it next. Ken Creeps here to ask, do you want to save time in the kitchen? Of course you do. Well, then we have the perfect thing for you. It's the Retro Movie Roundtable Podcast. It slices, dices, juices, purees, poaches, fries, boils, broils, tenderizes, vacuum seals, self-cleans, and shares the experiences of great movies. It even has a flan setting. Too good to be true? Well, it is. How does it work? Simply put it in your ears while working in the kitchen, and your cooking experiences will be dramatically improved. Yes, it's that simple. To order more Retro Movie Roundtable for your household, go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other place where you get your podcast and subscribe, rate, and review, and comment on the show. Tell them how to make the show better, if that's even possible. Compare to other kitchen devices by giving the show a like on Facebook and writing the show at Retro Movie Roundtable at Yahoo.com. Act now, and for a limited time, we will give you two episodes of Retro Movie Roundtable for the price of one. It's that easy. What are you waiting for? The Retro Movie Roundtable is not a kitchen device and does not do most of the previously mentioned tasks. There is not a flan setting, but there is a great listen while you're working in the kitchen and will improve your cooking experiences. Do not let this offer pass you by. The Retro Movie Roundtable makes a great gift for your friends, family, or that weird quiet guy at the office. Do not delay. Act now. Retro Movie Roundtable. All right, we're back. And if you haven't seen the movie Alien, this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. Now, Fry, if people haven't seen the movie Alien since 1979, do you want to refresh people's memory? Absolutely. So the crew of the Nostromo is awakened early en route to Earth from a mining expedition. The cause? A signal from a nearby planet. After a debate and a non-negotiation over extra pay, the crew set out to the planet in search of the mysterious signal. What they find there is both a mystery and a realization that they are not alone, as an alien creature bursts from an egg and attaches itself to the crew member's face. Once back on the ship, uh, Ripley, the third officer, is overruled by the science officer, who, ignoring quarantine procedures, lets the away team back on board. There, they try to remove the facehugger alien from the face of their fallen crew member, only to discover that the alien has acidic blood. Remarkably, to the crew at one point, the alien simply falls off, leaving the crew member Kane alive and hungry. This is short-lived because Kane quickly becomes spasmatic and a new alien life bursts from his chest. At this point, the crew quickly come up with a plan to take the alien alive. This is a mistake, as they quickly realize the size and ferocity of the alien has increased immeasurably. Crew member after crew member dies, various plans to kill the creature fail, and ultimately the captain falls victim. Ripley gets access to the mother computer. She is shocked to discover uh, this was all in the cards all along, and that the crew and herself were listed as expendable, and all were secondary to taking the alien life form alive. She then struggles with a science officer, only to find that he himself is an artificial life form. The remaining crew launch a desperate effort to abandon ship and self-destruct with the alien inside. This also meets with failure as Ripley awakens and finds the alien hibernating in the escape ship. She quickly puts on a spacesuit and cleared the atmosphere, knocking the alien into the vacuum of space, leaving a log of what a 
occurred as the movie concludes. Now, Brian, this is a science fiction and a horror movie. Would you say that you love it more for its horror aspects or for its science fiction aspects? Like, which do you feel like shows through stronger? I think this movie is a perfect example of how you don't have to cookie cutter yourself. You can be considered one of the greatest movies of all time without being like, oh, you can't put it in that category. It's horror. Yeah, but it was suspense. It was science fiction. It was thought provoking. I think this is a perfect example of a movie that transcends genre. This is a common monster, picks people off one by one. This is in so many movies. What makes it special here to you? I think if you actually look back at horror movies and look at what came before and after Alien, I don't think there's very many monsters picking off people one by one as well as Alien did. And then as soon as Alien comes out, that becomes the trope for everything from 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 going to an abandoned camp at crystal lake to you know anything uh it becomes that pick off one by one by one who's going to survive i think became a template for even alien films after that specifically aliens there are so many uh movies that came after trying to cash in trying to use that same formula you feel like it's uh it's influential and in that structure and that's one of the reasons that people hail it over so many other ones because there's so many other movies that do this same approach Right. I mean, could you just imagine going to this movie, knowing what you know about movie history, and seeing this movie for the first time, having not seen any of this kind of stuff that happened in the 80s and 90s and, and so on, and just seeing that all those effects and the fear and terror that you would have experienced in the theater, because nothing, I don't think anything would have ever touched that prior to Alien. That's a good point. I was going in kind of wanting science fiction because tends to be, as a genre uh, fan, I'm, I tend to be a science fiction fan, but I guess Fry was pointing out that you don't have to do one thing or the other. I, it, it was it, it took me as a horror without even realizing I was getting in for horror. I just, just that's part of it I didn't know about that gripping was definitely the word that I would use. I thoroughly was uh, sucked in, and it's one of those things where they kind of introduce you to all the characters, but you know there's this sense of something bad's coming, even in the first 20 minutes when nothing really happens that's bad. But once stuff starts unfolding, uh, you're on the edge of your seat right to the very end. And that's not something that I was expecting when I got into this movie. I was expecting blast them up, shoot them up, alien kind of things like, like aliens. Well, there's little bits and pieces of other science fiction movies. You get a little era 2001 Space Odyssey in here, too. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch in here that I just causes me every time I watch it to be like, ah, oh, yeah, that. And, and, and that's a fun piece when you go into a movie and you can be like, oh, because... And I'll still find myself either thinking of movies that have happened after or before where I'm like, oh, I can see how this was an influence. So, uh, but back to your all's point on... Uh, killing one after another in terms of that being a uh, uh, an outline for other movies. You gave me a great idea because now I want to shoot a horror movie for Sundance where the killer kills everybody in the first 20 minutes and then the last, call it 45 minutes of the movie, is just him trying to find something to watch on TV and drinking a scotch. <laughs> and it'll just be her- heralded as this breakthrough movie that, that that's, breaks the mold on, on murder slashers where he just kills all these people in the first 30 minutes and then I've got like, you know, call it a 90 minute movie of him just happy with his work. <laughs> <laughs> the monster itself, I think, is a big part of why it's still revered. The alien itself 
is really a great invention. It's hard to kill. It's hard to find. It's hard to even understand because you don't even fully understand the rules, especially as you're first watching it. You know, conceptual artist Ron Cobb, who uh, came up with the idea that the uh, the alien should bleed acid so that you can't just shoot it, you can't cut it. It'll cut through the hull of your spaceship and create a vacuum into space, killing everybody. What a great villain. I mean, it's it's pretty unstoppable. That, that just makes it this perfect predator oh whoa whoa easy there yeah you're you're dipping into the wrong franchise's kool-aid there you're right you're right but i mean it it's it, you gotta admit though like as far as a villain goes boy they they did such a great job both from the looks as well as the rule book for how it operates i i will go back on a previous statement from earlier in this show um when i said i've seen all of these and love them the AVP movies were, were quite bad. I'm not saying I'd never come back and watch them again, but they were they were pretty, pretty bad. I will say this, though, uh, as a big fan of the Alien vs. Predator video game series, I mean, they were magnificent. I, I am still hoping, I'm holding out, that someone will maybe do those those movies justice. And more, and more of the line that these are, like, if you took Aliens and added Predators to that, because it still keeps that dark feeling throughout the movie. It, it just got too sensationalized and you know a little bit too uh, Batman and Robin when they tried to do it in film. So uh, I still think it could be a thing. Yeah, I'm going to show my age here, but when I first saw Alien, it was about the same time that Dark Horse Comics had the rights to, to do Alien. So I had some of those comics, and then they got the rights to do Predator. And they actually did a sequel to the original Predator as a comic book where Arnold Schwarzenegger's character's brother was in the city and the Predators come to the city. And I think they actually took that as part of what would go into Predator 2. But after those series, that's when they came out with Aliens vs. Predator as a comic book. And I can remember you know, going to the shop every week saying, is the next one out? Is the next one out? Oh, it was fantastic. Man, if they would just make that into a movie. I, mean, I completely that, agree. That, that would be it. I mean, to me, all the ones that they've even made after that comic, nothing's ever matched that one to me. If I had the money and the, <laughs> and the right. gumption, and you could do it right. Well, they also had a really nice leveling system, even with the video games, where you had the aliens, which were numerous, but easier to kill. You had the space marines that had technology, but they were fairly easy to kill. And then you had the predators who didn't have numbers, but they had like super tech and very difficult to kill. So they had like, it was a rock, paper, scissors thing that they had kind of going on there. But man, you want to talk about hooked on something. I played the crap out of those video games. Sounds a little bit like Starcraft. Could be. I've never played Starcraft. Oh, well then you're missing out. Now, another thing that to me makes this movie stand out from a, a lot of other movies is you don't have a bunch of idiots getting picked off one by one. The crew is actually a good set of characters and actors. And for me, the crew that you see in this is such a big part of why this movie works. To your point, like I thought you used a great example of uh, Friday the 13th. If everybody's just a bunch of idiots running around, you don't like anybody, or if you're not interested in them and what they're doing, then you really aren't vested in what's going on. And not, not, not emotionally in this way. So it was believable. Like they were an older group of guys and out in space and they weren't warriors. They weren't soldiers. They were basically mining truckers. 
bringing ore back to Earth. They're completely ill-equipped to deal with this, and that, that adds so much more interest to it for me. Space jockeys. <laughs> I agree with what, what you're saying. There's no expendable people on that, on that ship. There's no red shirt, so to speak. <laughs> the no-name that makes wisecracks and is the first one that gets killed. There's none of that going on there, so... But that's part of that slow burn. He he builds those characters. He actually wakes them up to you. You start to learn all their personalities. And then you learn their part on the ship. Two guys that are kind of the mechanics. And you got you kind of learn who who's in charge and science officers. So you're just slowly learning to really buy into the characters so that you don't really feel like you could live without any of them. I also really liked uh, Ripley's character because she seemed to be the kind of glue person anyway. Like she kind of got, you know, she went down to help the engineers because she knows how to do that. I know this is probably going into later movies, but you know, she's got the mechanical wherewithal to to run a lot of systems. Like she knows how to use mother, but she doesn't have access to it. She can fly the ship. Like she's got a lot of talents, and I think she's a fantastic piece to really have be the the main character because she really is a glue for the crew. Mm-hmm. And to another interesting point, the uh, slow burn. In this movie, you don't really think Ripley's your main character. They don't hit you across with it. It's pretty far into the movie before she starts to emerge. The camera wakes up on John Hurt. Similarly, Tom Skerritt's character, Dallas. And so Dallas and Kane seem to be getting more screen time, more lines. Even Ash is getting more time in Holmes' character. Uh, it kind of comes out of nowhere that Ripley becomes your hero that you walk through. And even that's a that's that's an interesting turn in the movie and there's these major turning points in here you go from this ensemble or maybe one or two guys who are your people that you're following and then it's just like oh this character who we've just been having in the background is so much more interesting than we ever realized and one of the things i found interesting you know digging into some of the backstory of this of the film and the screenplay is that actually it was originally written to be an all-male cast and i believe at the time there were a lot of motion pictures that really were pushing for trying to think of the right word where women were in more power. Part of the development was to introduce a, a female character and then even make that the quote unquote hero of the movie. And then they actually ended up changing another person into a female as well. I, I read somewhere that they really like as a sci-fi future film that they went into this assigning no real gender roles. Like the idea was to let this organically happen without making a statement piece, just saying that there is no gender norms that we're trying to assert based on who we are today. And one of the only things that I have seen that did something similar to that is uh, recently I watched a miniseries on Hulu called Reprisal. And in it, literally the entire show is set in an ambiguous time and there is varying races in it, but there is no racial tensions. There, It's never brought up. It's not assigned in any way, shape, or form. And it's something that I like when it's executed properly. And I feel like this did it for gender the way that Reprisal did for race. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have something called the Bechdel test. It is, does a female have a conversation with another female that's not about another male? This is a movie that certainly passes that. Can you think of many female heroes, certainly in a 70s movie like this, that are such an iconic, strong character? Hmm. Yeah, just just trying to think. Um... Sarah Connor, maybe? I mean, I know that's going forward quite a bit, but that's the one that, yeah, that's... 
I mean, Leia, Princess Leia. But she even uh, had the, the first Friday the 13th. The person right? who survives yep. is a female. That's a good point. Kind of what Brian was saying, though. She's smart. Like, she's in charge and, like, she asserts herself. She's number two in command. Like, so she's she's uh-huh. got a decent rank on her own. And she's certainly tough. She's not a damsel in distress that needs saving. So uh, I, one of my favorite parts of the movie is after Dallas goes and Ripley's in charge. And it's not that long of a part of the movie. But it, to me, that's just that's peak what you think of when you think of this movie. Ripley with a flamethrower. <laughs> yeah, right. We haven't talked about this much. This kind of sets up a universe. Cameron chooses to go a whole nother direction with his second movie. And then the third movie, help me out, is that Finchner? Yeah. Finchner goes a whole nother direction with his movie. And then Ridley Scott gets a hold of the series again with Prometheus and Alien Covenant. And there we see a lot of the groundwork that he laid in this returning. I just wanted to know, as a universe and as a franchise... How how does it go down for you, knowing that it touches so many hands and then comes back into the hands of Ridley later? I think it it worked out okay, and maybe I'll just take steps here. I think if you if you were to think about okay, I've seen Alien, where do you go from there? I think Cameron took the next logical step is you got to have a ton of these things running around. What do you do? How can you even have a fighting chance? Well, you got to have Space Marines or something like that to be even ha- even have a fighting chance. Me and my team of ultimate badasses. Yeah. Three kind of, I think, attempts to pull it back to to the style of Alien 1, where you have this slow burn, you have one alien. And I'll I'll throw out there as well, if you haven't seen the, and I can't remember if it's called the extended or if it's called the director's cut, it is much better than what was released theatrically, in my opinion. Hmm. That one is okay. The fourth one is, is a lot of fun. It gets a little weird. In, in the genetics department. But I did really like Prometheus, but there's parts of it I don't like as well. Part of what I don't like about Prometheus is the way that they made the engineers. To me, the alien that's, you know, in, in the movie Alien, that space jockey that they discover, that mummified corpse in that big gun room or whatever it is. Yeah. To me, that is what that thing looks like. I don't think it should be should have i mean i feel like it was kind of backwards engineered to be this kind of grecian or roman you know marble statue engineer this thing that they put on it that looks like the space jockey that they see in the first movie i kind of thought that was kind of lame i like the idea of of that kind of you know engineers that are you know at the molecular level creating life Um, so i kind of like that alien covenant was to me more of like a frankenstein type movie um, but sure. it, it was fun. It was fun to see that those things, especially when the ship is hovering and it's up on, you know, near the end of the movie when it's up on the ship. Yeah, I think it it went okay. I think it's neat to see different directors' perspectives. One of the other things that I kind of don't like about Prometheus is it kind of put a stop to the Ripley story. Now, I don't know if you knew about this, but the, the I'm trying to remember his name that did District Nine, Neil Blom Blomkamp, yeah, or something like that. He was already starting to do pre-production design on an Aliens 5 that would bring Newt and Hicks and Ripley back together. And I think it was effectively going to nullify 3 and 4, but uh, that would have been really interesting to see. But who knows, maybe that'll happen in another 10 years or so. (laughs) Sure. To Brian's point that he, or Fry's point earlier when he said, take my money. Yeah. I think you're going to get it. This is one of those franchises that it might lie dormant. In a, in a room full of eggs for a while, but at some point it's going to wake up. <laughs> and attach itself to someone's face. Yes. I guess my 
my thing on that is like even after the first Alien versus Predator travesty, I still paid to see the second one in theaters. I'm I'm gonna that, I'm gonna swing. Yeah, I'm gonna keep swinging. Like it, and then like Predators came out, and I actually did enjoy that one. I just think that that there's so much. It is a huge world that they opened up by connecting those two, and they really could if there was interest and good directorship behind it, go 10 movies in any direction they wanted to. But in this sort of world where you're setting up the Waylon, uh, Waylon, Yutani, I mean like the evilness of that corporation could be umbrella worthy. And you saw how many resident evil movies they just chucked out on a yearly basis. So take that as, as a focal point, take, you know, what's already been there. You can keep or leave out whatever you want to that's already been done and and give this the marvel makeover and go for 30 movies man like i'll watch them <laughs> right we talked about you know there's a connection to predator there's actually even a connection to blade runner that ridley scott claims that these are in the same universe that Whalen yutani and terrell corporation are in the same universe is and I can't remember exactly. You, you just gave me goosebumps. I was going to say, Brian? Like, you, you are now tying this in with probably my favorite movie of all time. And I'm like, oh, yeah, give me this. Give me this. Brian hit mute on his microphone and just like opened up the window and screamed outside. Yes! <laughs> and then now, walked over. There are Easter eggs or something. I can't remember off the top of my head. And probably after we talk here, I'm going to have to go look it up again. But if you look up... Um, and it has to do with Prometheus and or Alien Covenant. There are Easter eggs, I think, alluding that they're in the same universe as, as Blade Runner. And, and, and there's, a, there's an interview around the same time where, where Ridley Scott considered those to be in the same universe. Well, I mean, it totally makes sense with the uh, alternative humans. Or what, what was it in the, in the second one? Bishop says uh, he prefers to be called... Alternate life, alternative life form, or something like that. I don't know. It was, it was, it was something super PC, and I was like, "Oh, Bishop." But no, I mean that would be, oh god, that'd be amazing. Like that's me standing up on my chair, you know, when they want to vote for this, and I'm like, "Ooh, me, 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 me." <laughs> so yeah, that would be so good if they did it right. I think that Ridley was on his way to doing some of this because he talked about wanting to make six additional movies, Prometheus and Alien Covenant being, I guess, the first two of them. Alien Covenant didn't gross as much money, so we keep saying it's cashing checks. Covenant didn't get good reviews and it stopped making money, so you're not going to probably see these other six movies of Ridley Scott's. Uh, People were saying that he was becoming too pretentious and trying to go too conceptual with it. At the end of the day, people just like the monsters and, you know, uh, some of this heavy thought-provoking stuff that he was pushing on people, they weren't ready to go for that. But Ridley was ready to expand and go into great, great detail. So it's interesting. Maybe the studio will let him have the keys to the car again. Maybe not. I, I think that what they're saying, though, is like I feel like Alien has some of these you know, thought-provoking elements, but he was subtle in Alien. I will say he got much more ham-handed later on with what he was pushing, and and I understand that uh, as a uh, a knock on Prometheus and Covenant, but in in the end I still feel like he sort of tied some things back around because even in Covenant they're they're back to the the androids being the bad guys about there there's someone to not be trusted, so I feel like there is some some loop back 
with his his storylines. I just think in execution, there have been some flaws. That's actually a really good point. And going back to the movie that we're talking about today with Alien, though, is who is the bad guy in this one? I mean, the xenomorph alien itself is is definitely a villain but i mean on the other hand the wyland corporation just turns its back on the crew and that's another one of those big turns just like i said when ripley takes over the crew that's a big turn in the movie this is another big turn when you find out that the wyland corporation takes priority over retrieving any new life form over the crew's safety and this is a total shock to all the workers aboard it's a pretty shocking thing and then beyond that the bearer of that news later goes on and Ash is a uh, android or robot. There's just such big turns in this. And I don't know, the Wyland Corporation, to me, might actually be the greatest villain of all in this movie. Is that fair? I would say that although the antagonist is the alien species, they are a lot like, um, say, Star Trek's The Borg to me. They are a hive-minded you know, like they just spread They're they're or uh, if you want to go with starship troopers like the bugs like they're it's not they're doing what they do as creatures like there's no no higher Machiavellian. Hmm, now we're going to kill all the humans like that's not their motivation. Their motivation is to breed and spread. So I think that if you know, if you allow the, the greater spoiler here. So for everybody, spoiler alert. The real bad guy for any of these to come should be the Whalen Utani uh, Corporation, because they are really the, they're they're man's inhumanity to man. You know they don't care about what happens to the little guy. They're out for money. They could have easily destroyed the human race several times. Like that is the bad, the big bad. And that's interesting in its own right. Science fiction movies are often, you know, you could say that they're either liberal or conservative and like conservative science fictions where like a foreign threat comes to our planet and threatens life as we know it and uh, a liberal one might be more of a um, this company not the government is this evil entity so it's kind of an interesting crossroads between those two perspectives yeah yeah so yes i i agree brian do you want to give us a quick rundown on the cast we've already mentioned all about all of them almost yeah it's true but yes i will uh name them off so, of course, we start with uh, Sigourney Weaver's Ripley. And I feel like this is just one of those names that goes on forever. You say Ripley and it's like Sarah Connor. Like, people just know who you're talking about. Uh, one of my favorite people in this movie is Tom Skerritt's Dallas. Uh, we also have Veronica Cartwright as Lambert. Harry Dean Stanton as Brett. John Hurt as Kane. Sorry, Sir John Hurt as Kane. Sir Ian Holm as Ash. Yafet Kodo as Parker. And Balanji... Vegeto, but he plays the alien. I'm glad you brought him up. Which I thought was cool, too. I know um, I read up on, on Ridley Scott not wanting it to be... He wanted to use animatronics, but not, not a person in a suit. I think that was easily one of the best characters in the in the movie, the way that he... The live movements of a sentient alien carnivore. Or not even carnivore. You don't even know... He doesn't eat anybody. He just kills them. So, and a great, an aggressive, hostile alien species, and the way he, like the movements of the alien, make it almost more terrifying because, man, the thing's like sinewy and quick. Now, Sigourney Weaver is the last actor to get cast for this movie. Ridley Scott stated in casting the role of Ripley that it ultimately came down to Sigourney Weaver and Meryl Streep, the two actresses. Uh, 
man, I just can't believe that. I can't picture it going to Meryl Streep. I mean, she's awesome. She can do all <laughs> kinds of stuff. But I mean, gosh, Sigourney Weaver is so tough and awesome in this. <laughs> I don't know. No, Sh- Streep, Streep is one of my brother's favorite actresses. And I know this is probably based bra- blasphemy for saying, but I was like, in no way, shape, or form can I picture her in this movie. No, no. <laughs> she's too nice. Have you seen Devil Wears Prada? I have, actually. I, I started thinking about other roles that she has done. So, I mean, <laughs> I still don't think she's tough enough is, is the better way of putting it, though. Oh, I agree. I think this really, and I I don't want to use typecast or anything because, you know, this is Weaver's breakout. But, man, I just, I remember thinking after this, like, oh, man, she's bad. Yep, don't cross her. <laughs> she's, and you know, I can't tell you how many female movie fans out there love Sigourney Weaver Yes, she's had iconic roles in Ghostbusters and and a number of other things that she's done as well. And she's always got so much presence when she does it. But man, she owns this character. This is to me, this is the beginning of an amazing Hollywood presence. I mean, she's she's this tall, imposing character and she's tough. And I I, got to hand it to the movie as well as the fact that they even if they did say that it doesn't matter what gender they are. There's a lot of women who watch this and were inspired uh, by this character and that makes people embrace themselves to this all the more. And so anything to bring more female fans over to the science fiction genre and to bring more female nerds to the world and great job on that. Plus it's just fun and unexpected. I'm only going to say this halfway cynically, but you know, if you like Sigourney Weaver, you get to enjoy her in the next four avatar movies. They have my money to your point earlier. I will pay. I'm going to see them. So right now they've got them tentatively slated for 21, 23, 25, and 27, two of which are currently filming. But uh, I I look at that sort of thing and I'm just like, "Uh, that's so much money. That's (laughs) like like the amount of film that they're going to shoot for four more (laughs) Avatar movies. Like it like that's that you could actually state that just those four movies and then the amount of everything that they will go through that's a minor econ- uh, uh, ecological disaster like if you just think of the coffee cups they'll use for filming those four movies there's a landfill that's got to be like earmarked just for avatars <laughs> possible blade runner crossover here Harrison Ford turns down the role of Captain Dallas in this so uh, that could have been a number of projects for him in 79. Uh, you know, he was in Hanover Street, Apocalypse Now, The Frisco Kid, More American Graffiti. And then one year later, goes and does Empire Strikes Back. So he was in high demand at this point. But I do got to wonder, does he wish he had taken that? Brian uh, Reynolds, can you picture Harrison Ford entering himself as Captain Dallas? It would be difficult. I think it'd be as awkward as seeing him in Apocalypse Now. When you see him, he's playing a, a straight character. Uh, if you think about classic Harrison Ford, he's always kind of a hero, but he's got this little, you know, grin. There's a humor to him. And this movie doesn't really didn't really have room for that. So I think it would be kind of hard to, to, to see him in that role. You're, so you're sticking with Tom Skerritt in this one? Yeah. Well, you almost didn't get him either. He actually declined the movie initially. He said, I was not impressed with the writing or the low budget of the movie. But after the screenplay was edited and the budget later goes on to be increased, he prompted on to sign on. And halfway through the production, he was even trying to leverage his salary instead to say, can he have a percentage of the royalties because he realized he was part of something really special here midway through. I don't know that he got that deal, but... uh, it's interesting, the 180, where he declined it initially, too. I was going to say, I was actually watching some of the documentary making of the movie, and 
he actually brought that up where they gave him the script and he looked at the money that they had to make that. And it was half, I think only like $4 million or something like that, less than half. Yeah. And he said, there's no way they could make this any good with that budget. So he passed on it. And so to get him back, they had to tell him that, you know, the budget had doubled <laughs> to be able to make it. So it didn't look probably like a Doctor Who set or something like that, you know. Good point. Yeah, absolutely. Were there any other interesting things in the cast that you wanted to call up? I do know some of these people are in some other classic sci-fi movies. I mean, Sigourney Weaver came back in like uh, that Galaxy Quest science fiction comedy. Uh, and then you had Ian Holm who came back in, uh, had a pretty significant role in uh, in The Fifth Element. Oh, that's I, I go back and forth over which one was my favorite Ian Holm performance because I love them both so much. He's also in the uh, Lord of the Rings series. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then, then you have John Hurt. He also played Kane in Spaceballs. Uh, yeah, and actually, he did a Lord of the Rings piece too, although it was vocal in the uh, an- 70s animated Lord of the Rings oh, really? adaptation. Yep. Wow. I, I did not realize the Spaceballs connection until now. I'm so glad you pointed that out. Yeah, he plays himself from that movie. That's why he says, oh, no, not again. Oh, man. (laughs) I I can't believe I've never put all that together until now. I love both of these movies. And I sure enough, I I just Googled it. And uh, 100% that that is not only an alien reference, but man, they went back and got the same actor. How good is that? Well done. (laughs) I didn't know that. I know Veronica Cartwright had originally auditioned to play Ripley. And uh, Weaver was actually more interested initially in playing Lambert. Uh, in the screenplay, Lambert was originally more of a wisecracking character, kind of to what you were saying uh, uh, earlier, Brian, but they chose to do away with that wisecracking kind of tone. They didn't want that. They they chose to go with a more subdued, more serious tone. And again, I think this movie benefits from doing, t- from handling everything with seriousness. Totally agree. There is humor, but it's all the, the guys that are working, you know, on the ship between uh, uh, Brett and Parker, you know, making jokes you know, we're, those guys are lucky we're, we're here to take care of the ship. You know, that kind of talk that they do has a good, fun you know, banter every time they're around. And then you have Parker always asking about the shares of money <laughs> that they're going to get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's about the only humor you get in the movie, I think. Yeah, for sure. Again, it's a serious movie and that keeps you engaged. Anything on the writing or creation side of it, Ryan? That's one of the things that reading about the background is really interesting and I don't know how much you guys have read about it, but the Dan O'Bannon, who, who kind of came up with the initial concept, had kind of started writing this movie. And interesting connection there is he worked with John Carpenter on his first movie, which was an alien on a spaceship called Dark Star. I still need to see that. It was a comedy, but the alien was actually a, a, like a red beach ball. Um, <laughs> it was kind of like the comedy version of 2001. There's a, there's a computer on board. I've only seen it once or twice. It's been a long time ago, so I apologize. But uh, that's that's where he kind of got his start at uh, in film school. And so he started working on some ideas. And then if you haven't seen this documentary, it's called Joe Dorowski's Dune. I really recommend you go see it. I have definitely seen that. Um, So Dan O'Bannon got invited to help this Chilean director put together a production of Dune. And this Dune was going to be really wild. I mean, it's going to have Mick Jagger in it. Pink Floyd was supposed to be lined up to do music. Just all kinds of crazy stuff. And one of the coolest things that happened is that he pulled together some really good artists like that Chris Foss, H.R. Giger. 
and uh, even Mobius. If you've not heard of Mobius, you've probably heard of the old heavy metal magazines. He was a part of that in French comics. But after six months or something like that, I think it all completely fell through. They couldn't get the money. They couldn't get the backing. And Dan O'Bannon came back, I think, basically broke with no place to live and ended up living with, I'm trying to think, was it Ronald Shusett, who's the other writer? That's right. And then that's, and then they came up with this, the idea to do this movie. And, but a part of that is when they started, you know, to get bites on getting production for Alien, he kind of remembered H.R. Giger and Chris Foss and these artists that had worked on that. And so that's where the connection to get H.R. Giger came to get the creature design uh, for the film. So if this guy, Jodorowsky, had not tried to make Dune, we probably wouldn't have Alien the way it is today. And just so I can go on some degrees of separation here, I'm really excited personally to see Dennis Villanueva's new remake of Dune. And uh, he was the uh, director of Blade Runner 2049. Right, right. So just to, to come full circle on all of this insanity we're talking about here, but uh, I really enjoyed 2049. I thought they did a really good job keeping the tone of, of Blade Runner, even though making a sequel that late. So if you can pull that off for me, I feel like you can pull off Dune. And I've got the kind of insanity with this where I've got three or four different book copies of Dune. But I have also have like the David Lynch Dune. I've got the Sci-Fi Channel pre- uh, Presents miniseries of Dune on DVD and Blu-ray. I can't wait for this new movie it is. I might take a week off just to see it once a day. <laughs> just to make it worse, part of Geiger's Dune that he created is actually in Prometheus. If you remember yeah. in Prometheus, that big giant building with the face on the front of it, that is actually a Harkonnen ship. Really? Or fortress or something that he painted back in the 70s. Love it. That's fantastic. I'm going to have to look for that again. And so, Brian, your unenthusiasm for Avatar, what if James Cameron uses his alien connection and says, yeah, yeah, mine's mine's part of this universe, too. <laughs> Game over, man. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, so I couldn't resist. Everything else met with enthusiasm. I All I hear is his name is James Cameron, bravest pioneer. No budget too steep, no sea too deep. Who's that? It's him, James Cameron. <laughs> But uh, I thought it was interesting, O'Bannon knows us that he drew on specific uh, science fiction horror. He said, I didn't steal Alien from anybody, I stole it from everybody. And which I love when people are students of what it is that they do and that they recombine old ideas and to create something truly fresh and new. So he said that he was influenced from Thing from Another World in 51, The Forbidden Planet, like where a ship is warned not to land and they land uh, one by one and uh, they're killed off in a mysterious creature. Planet of the Vampires in 1965. There's a hero discovers a giant alien skeleton. Junkyard from 1953. A short story by Clifford Simmert. The crew lands on an asteroid and discovers a chamber full of eggs. There's just so many things that he said that he was inspired by and he put it all together. It's kind of interesting to what we were talking about this. It doesn't feel derivative of anything. It it feels very much of its own. Yeah, you'll hear that a lot with with even just artists that you know doing you know drawings and things is. They'll tell you the same thing. They'll give you the same advice he says is you don't steal from someone, you steal from everyone and you make it your own. And I think that's that's really cool. If, if you really talk to people that make things, they will tell you where all these different pieces come from. It can kind of ruin it for you, but the magic for you, but you can see where these different influences play and come into play. I don't think it ruins it at all. 
It makes me admire them. Uh, yeah, I would say, and I'll, I'll even say that uh, on a different note, that once I learn where it all came from, then I go and watch and listen to that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually going to bring up the Planet of the Vampires, and if you have not seen it, it is actually on Amazon Prime right now. It was made by a, an Italian director called Mario Bava, and if you've not heard of Mario Bava, there's there's a whole list of really strange and unique and dreamlike movies that he made. But this one, I think, was called Terror from Space in, in Italian, but they called it Planet of the Vampires, which sounds really cheesy. But yeah, it is. if there was one movie I had to pick that closely resembles Alien, it would be Planet of the Vampires. It is a, dis, a, a movie where there is a distress signal. They land on this planet, actually crash land, and can't immediately leave. They actually do find some type of ancient alien that has has died, you know, some type of mummified alien. And the atmosphere there is very dark and strange, just like, I mean, it's not as windy and stormy because the whole, most of the movie takes place on the surface of this planet. But yeah, go check that out on Amazon Prime. It's worth it. You'll really see a lot of alien in there. I'm intrigued. And to add to those influences, Ridley Scott, the director, comes on board and he said that he had three particular things that were driving him in in pursuing this as well. He said uh, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, 2001 A Space Odyssey for their depictions of outer space. But then he also comes in with the influence from Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 74 and uh, its treatment of horror. And it's interesting that all of those influences also enter this. So to your point, Brian, uh, stealing from everybody, the best the best artists are the best thieves right he even calls alien uh jaws in space yeah yeah i mean that's a great that's a good way to get your budget doubled and it did work because i mean (laughs) star wars had come on board and you're right they went from a 4.2 million dollar budget to an 8.4 million dollar budget nobody wanted this movie initially but uh, once uh, star wars happened and they were hungry and they already had the script and everything was ready to go from where they weren't getting accepted by any of the studios all of a sudden, oh, yes, give us more science fiction now. It, it, it makes money. Here's more money to make us more money. And it, and it worked out great. So everybody wins. The evil Wyland Corporation prospered heavily in this movie. <laughs> All rights reserved. Um, now, I thought it was the thing that was interesting. You'll see so much about this when you study this movie online. Writers Dan O'Brien and Ronald Shusett came into uh, impasse when they were talking about how to get the alien on board. And Shusett came up with the idea of one of the aliens raping one of the astronauts. And that evolved later into the facehugger concept, far more subtle and a lot more, uh, let's just say, easier to deal with on screen. And this, But this method of reproduction still was intended to evoke images of rape. And, uh, the writers were adamant that the face hugger victim needs to be a man because A, it would be kind of disturbing if that were a woman. And then B, it makes you kind of feel uneasy, kind of the symbolic violent raping kind of gesture happening to a guy. So it completely takes away the um, sense of this can't happen to me. And it makes the male viewers feel more uncomfortable with that reversal in itself. So it forcibly takes them, it impregnates them, and they even, you know, can even die giving birth to something. So by imposing them on the whole audience, if you're a human, you're a vessel. That's a big part of what they did. I would say that this doesn't make the movie. Some people really focus on this, and this is a really big thing for a lot of people. I just think it's uh, sprinkles. This is a great movie all the way across. It's just presented so well by Ridley Scott, but... uh, I thought that was an interesting aspect that th- that they came across at it. And I think it evolved into a, such a better idea than just being so blunt. Yeah, I, I would agree with that too. I think that I never really took it as such. Like reading up on the movie and, and production notes and that sort of thing, I heard about this too or read about this too. And I, I guess I never really put it in those terms in my head when it happened. 
But I can tell you, you know, flat out, the the facehugger alien is probably one of the most, if not the most, terrifying alien you know proposition you could run into. Just being a fan of film and seeing the you know different options. Yeah, I agree. Sign me up for none of it. But this <laughs> is one of the the worst. Like this is this is on the end of the spectrum of hard pass. Yeah. So Brian Brian saying you know facehugger alien. That's the extreme on one side. On the other side, Natasha Henstridge from Species. He's like you know if if you gotta you guys, go, that's that's yeah, a good way to go. That's all it. I'm saying. <laughs> you killed me. Species was also designed by H.R. Geiger, so there's your connection. Oh, it all connects. It's perfect. <laughs> I actually didn't realize that when I went that direction. Now, what did you think about Ridley Scott here as a director, Brian? Looking across his, you know, he's done so many movies. To me, he's a little hit and miss. I think when he goes genre with something like science fiction, it usually does come out really well. Other times, it's not, not so good. Sometimes, even fantasy, I think legend that he did... In, in the 80s is, is another fantastic movie that he did that I think is completely underrated and, and underloved, in my opinion. But yeah, I think he's a good, good director. He's good at getting a story across. Some of those stories are stories I don't care for, but he does a good job. But yeah, I think his strength is in is in fantasy and, and science fiction. <laughs> we just did Legend, so uh, uh, yep. make sure you, if you're listening to this before that, for some reason, go back and check that one out. No, but I thought he just did so well with The Fear of the Unknown. If you don't get a good solid look at the alien directly and it never feels like an alien in a suit to what, you know, Fry was saying earlier, he wanted, he didn't want it to feel like a guy in a suit. It doesn't. It holds enough scare factor to it because he's very clever with how he shoots it, limiting its time on screen. And I will say this, normally when you see whatever monster there is, it's never as powerful as if you don't see it. But in this case, even when you do see the bits and pieces of it, whether it be the teeth within the teeth or whether it be the face hugger itself, it maintains a pretty scary level, even the parts that you do see. So it's it's good with suspense because you don't see it for a long time, but it's a very rare case of once you see it, it's still scary. And that's unusual. That's really unusual. Yeah. And I got to hand it to the set designers and the prop designers who made all that stuff. Definitely. Not to, to belabor the point, but to me, the only other thing that ever was close to that is the Predator from the Predator film. And the same same thing you're saying, you don't get to see really see that thing for probably, what, 70 minutes of the movie? Would it be fair to say that, that most of the good suspense horror does that, though? Because I remember reading a uh, or watching a an interview with Chris Carter where he's talking about how he didn't want to show an alien or a spaceship directly in X-Files until like season four or something. Now, obviously that didn't happen, but like there was a, a seriously long period of time where he's like, I just want hints and conjecture, bright lights, lost time. You know, I want to really milk this before you, we ever flat out go, you know, full on with a, uh, with aliens exist. Yeah. And one other thing Ridley did do also is uh, he did a lot of the shots himself, like the tight corridor, single-handed, handheld camera stuff. And that handheld camera stuff really contributes to the claustrophobic feeling of the movie. And I'm glad that they took that approach with how they filmed it. There's a, mm, I wouldn't say shakiness to it, but there's a, there's an intense, you're immersed into it because of how they shot that. Definitely. the, the, The way it's shot, you can almost feel the heartbeat. As people are, that last 15 minutes of the movie, you can almost feel her heartbeat in the camera work 
running back and forth trying to find the cat trying to stop the ship from blowing up i mean you just feel it you're on the edge of your seat you're probably not even breathing through half of that they made good choices with what to cut too. like i think they had something that would have cheapened the movie in there there was a sex scene between dallas and ripley where like the crew members had casual sex with each other and i'm glad they chose to go away from this they ended up having to cut another scene where they were ash was later asking ripley if she had slept with dallas and so they cleverly cut all that stuff out of there Later on, Prometheus does have some uh, crew members fraternizing with each other. I don't think that it totally cheapened that movie, but honestly, I can't say it makes it thrive either. So I'm glad they cut it out of this movie. Yeah, I don't think it was necessary. I think the one in Prometheus, though, is, is part of the plot, though. You had to have uh, that building up to the med pod scene. Oh, that, oh, that's actually a really good point. It does serve a purpose there. But anyway, they didn't go they didn't go Friday the 13th with it here. So, you know, they didn't have a right. <laughs> member take off her shirt and then get murdered two seconds later or whatever. So <laughs> all of this is shot in a London studios, the Shepperton Studios, and the miniatures were shot in the Bray Studios in uh, Berkshire. So I, I got to say, I love these miniatures of the of the star of the starships this is an era whether it be 2001 whether it be star trek star wars i don't i mean yes spacecraft are all shot in a similar sort of way around this time but i just i'm a sucker for it i love it i don't i don't there's no reason a spaceship would have all these uh, vents knobs tubes notches and stuff like that and uh but when they shoot those models over top of uh you like, like at the beginning of this movie you know sign me up i'm 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 a sucker for this yeah, there's a really uh, cool book, and I want to say it's called Sculpting a Galaxy, and it's all about the model department from Lucasfilm and all of the guys that were building all the different ships for Star Wars. If you like that kind of stuff, I would, I would recommend looking for that book. Oh, that's cool. It's a real big coffee table book, but it has, it's got all kinds of shots of them just building all that stuff. It's amazing what you can do with miniatures. People don't make movies that way anymore, but it's one of those things I just like to stop and remember. This is cleverly photographing models and stuff that are much smaller, mm-hmm. you know, making them seem so much larger than life and vast. And I love that about it. I mean, even the resourcefulness of the actual set design is applied too, because they make all these pieces come apart and they recombine. So like the scene where they wake up is also, you know, in the alien ship, uh, the egg chamber is is the same as that and so the skeletal remains of the alien ship where like the space jockey is sitting they pull the space jockey out and they change the lighting in there and then that's later goes on to readdress that for the egg room and they can recombine different parts of different quarters and stuff like that so even though the budget got doubled they were still extremely resourceful with how they've made everything seem so big and so interesting and it but in reality they're making very modular pieces that they can move around like legos right there's a whole interesting part of what you don't see there. I mean, the grid-like flooring that they're walking on are upturned milk crates. And, you know, there's like padded like booths that you would sit in and like at a restaurant diner and stuff like that, like in the background. And how all of these buttons and diodes all go together in a way that it's it's kind of cheap stuff. But in reality, when you look at the Nostromo or especially the uh, the alien craft, man, it delivers the atmosphere points so big for me. Again, just as the cast handles it seriously, the director handles it seriously, the visuals and the environment, to me, make it serious. And 
it's all very consistent and carries through with the physical environment too. I think that it really adds to the suspense. I think it's really important to set up the idea behind the tagline in space, no one can hear you scream. That really, that sort of seclusion is what, it's harder to represent it in any other way than, you know, like cabin in the woods style where you're, you know, in some remote area or the thing where they're in Antarctica. So um, I think this is a a natural setting for this sort of anxiety riddled, you know, quiet death. Yeah. Brian, what special effects made you most pleased obviously i got excited about the miniatures but uh are there any special effects moments that you got excited for it's more in how they're used um i think that you know when you have this sort of confined space atmosphere that they've got in this movie even going down to you know how uh wet they look from perspiration and this comes into a, a lot in aliens just that that feeling that they you know the, the walls are closing in that they're desperate the the, the feeling that they have nowhere else to go and then the varying pieces they use to make, you know, sinew and tissue and saliva and just it, it's it's all goes into this mistake of, oh, this is this is not going to be a good death. No. And Brian uh, Reynolds, any other special effects you want to call attention to? I'll, I'll just warn you, I'm a huge Geiger fan. The alien that's in this movie, uh, you know, is strong enough that I had to figure out who did that. And I actually have a book of that he put published about his uh, work on the movie. It's called Geiger's Alien. I don't think it's in print anymore, but it really goes through all the different steps of where they came up with really all the different pieces. The eggs, uh, the chest burster, which originally looked like, if you can find it, there's a picture where his first take looks like these raw chickens with teeth on the ends of their necks running around. They look, it looks really, really kind of funny, but that was his original take on it before he came up with the, the long fingers and, uh, and the tail. But that whole side of it, you know, he was given, I guess, kind of carte blanche to do the alien ship and design the alien ship and all that inside the ship with all the bone, there's actually bones that were used to make this, the walls and stuff like that inside. Uh, just all of his design is really what grabs me. And, and I mean, it's good enough that they won an Oscar for it. But yeah, anytime he ever did anything else, I was on board. But to me, that that's the one of the most important elements of the movie. And I think one of the things that uh, Ridley Scott said once he saw H.R. Geiger's artwork was, well, the last problem with the movie's been solved. They were still trying to figure out what that alien was going to look like. And, and when he was reviewing Geiger's work, he said, there it is. It didn't feel like he had any stress about making the movie anymore. <laughs> I know the texture of this movie really captures me. So when they're doing the autopsy on the facehugger, they actually went to a butcher and they got shellfish, oysters, uh, kidney, and right. internal organs to recreate that. So that kind of gross feeling is, well, that's real meat in there. And so... Uh, and same thing when Ash, when Ash blows up, he's got like cheap caviar and onion rings and spaghetti and milk and everything's thrown about, but somehow, uh, and lights and somehow it's just so eerie. And again, there's this visceral grossness to it. And the alien itself, that's a seven foot one tall man with these really long arms and stuff like that. But they, uh, they, they make such a wonderful head attachment to go on him and, uh, the, the slime on him, you know, I mean, he's covered in k- tons and tons of KY jelly, like something out of old school or something like that. Uh, again, they, they took it all the way down to that textural level. So great attention to detail. And you get that in those old movies where you don't have CGI. And, and, and give me that nine out of 10 times. Like, I'm not saying it isn't, it, it isn't 
worth it sometimes. I've seen some things that have done amazing jobs at CGI. And I'm like, wow, that was really cool. But give me the problem solvers who do it without nine out of ten times because the way they do it, A, fascinates me. I'm always like, all right, what did they use for that? Because that looks gross. Or that looks incredibly realistic. I mean, you can go either end of the spectrum with it. Huge fan of Jurassic Park, the way they did animatronics and that. So, you know, kudos to the guys who can do it without a computer. Soundtrack-wise... Brian, you're a big music fan. Did you like the Alien movie score? Funny story. So uh, maybe about eight years ago, I actually found the Alien soundtrack on vinyl. Hadn't really, like I said, hadn't seen the movie for like 15 years. I kind of remember, you know, that opening sequence where the letters slowly reveal themselves to spell out Alien. You know, there's this really soft, kind of strange music. Man, I was just sitting listening to it and drawing. And uh, that soundtrack is terrifying. If that's all you're sitting and listening to, it will scare you. Can I give you a recommendation? Sure. If you enjoyed that soundtrack, you should try to find, it only comes in vinyl, but it's the uh, complete score to Bird Box by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. I still haven't seen that movie. So watch the movie, see what you think first, obviously. But um, I was able to snag a copy at work, and we received one before it was completely sold out. Uh, but it's it's literally they're they're in between like bus tour places and it's all the raw stuff including the soundtrack and it is just haunting. So Jerry Goldsmith though is the composer on Alien and going back to the comment that you made, Ridley Scott made Legend a little bit later in, in the eighties there and Jerry Goldsmith was the one who did the soundtrack for that as well on the European version, which by the way, you should definitely watch, you know, the director's cut of the European one. Uh, otherwise you get Tangerine Dream for your score on that <laughs> one. But uh, Jerry Goldsmith delivers here and delivers there as well. Interesting for Ridley Scott maintaining that relationship. Although he did upset uh, Jerry Goldsmith a little bit. There are parts of this where he takes uh, other Goldsmith work from the movie Freud in 1962 instead. Goldsmith was a little bit horrified to discover that uh, some of the score was amended or even dropped out in places. So he he had a little bit of an anger towards this movie, even though hmm. it gets some award nominations in its own right. So Yeah, well, Jerry Goldsmith has had so many blockbusters that he's done movies for. I think he, he'll be all right. <laughs> Good point. Right. You guys ready to hand out some awards? Let's do it. Brian, MVP. Well, I was going to go with Geiger, but I, I, I'll keep it to an actor I, I think it has to go with has to go with sigourney weaver you can go creator does it could be anybody's but you're gonna go with sigourney on this one still yeah she's amazing how about you brian uh i went with the visual effects crew as a whole the only thing that really impressed me i mean that's that's the a number one just because of the the volume of work in this movie but the other little caveats i'll put in there is ridley scott and all the kinds of tricks that he played during the making of this movie to get real reactions out of the cast was fascinating to me. Like that's, it's like a cop who's done it for so long and he knows how to get someone to confess that just, it's such a cool talent for me. I went with Ridley Scott. I mean, and I really wish I could pick Sigourney Weaver on this one, but Ridley does such a good job with the storytelling, the pacing, knowing what to show when not to show it, overseeing the sets. And this is a classic. It's so highly regarded because everything's working so well. And it's a beautiful horror movie and a beautiful science fiction movie. And I got to go to the top on that one. Best Supporting Actor, Brian. 
I'll go with Tom Skerritt. I think once you see Tom Skerritt, you realize he's the leader. He never questioned that he's the leader. He never gets flustered other than when he's about to die. Um, but uh, he keeps his composure. He takes responsibility. And when they you know, are talking about how are we going to trap this thing in the air, he volunteers to go. Great choice. Now, Fry, who's your best supporting? So I, I'm actually in the same boat. The one uh, thing I'll say on this is I started the movie when I was doing my notes and everything for it. It was maybe a minute and a half in. The only thing that I had already filled out on my outline for the show is, and it's literally written here, Tom effing Scarrett for supporting. (laughs) Because I knew I'd probably go something in the line of director visual effects for for MVP. But I was like, yeah, just so we go ahead and nail this down. Tom Scarrett. Solid choice and it shows you how good the cast is. But I'm going to go with Ian Holm. I, I did not foresee that he was playing a robot and the unveiling was very dramatic. I mean, we haven't really talked about how dramatic the chest burster was or the, uh, or the unveiling of that, you know, he is an Android again. There's just so many mind blowers in addition to the suspense and thrillers on this one. That's just made this so very rewarding to watch. And Ian Holm, great job. I mean, uh, he had me convinced that he was human right up to the time where he started sweating milk. <laughs> so I, I, I'm with you on Holm. I mean, did a fantastic job in this movie. But the reason I could never give him this accolade is because of how much more I like Lance Hendrickson as the android. <laughs> okay. Like, I, it, it, it's only because there was, like, I knew there's better to come. And I'm not saying he didn't do a fantastic job. But, like, Lance Henriksen is, it, it, he's the android, you know what I mean? Like He is the cool. android you want on your side. Yeah, so, I mean, He's it's the just coolest like, android ever. Yeah, so I, I just, I, I know, like, I know I shouldn't have that in my mind when I'm thinking of Alien, but I do, and I can't not think about that. That's okay. Who's your hidden gem? Uh, it's a very tight cast, so this, this is normally for somebody buried in the cast, but who is your hidden gem, Brian? I couldn't really come up with a hidden gem for this one. You know what? I'm going to give you one of mine. Uh, uh, that's Christian Bale and Ridley Scott's two two children and the uh, space jockey scene. Uh, when So mm-hmm. this, this model is actually designed to be smaller so that they could actually be on there. They have Ridley Scott's kids and Christian Bale and kids in spacesuits so that they look like they belong more on the set there in astronaut suits. So uh, good job for Ridley Scott's kids and Christian Bale. If you're paying attention into the space jockey scene, you'd never see their faces. Interesting. Yeah. If you didn't know the background, you couldn't do this, but I think those, those key choices, how, how's the alien getting on the ship? How do you make it so formidable? Uh, All those little choices from all those different people are kind of hidden, but they're very important. I mean, the acid blood, you take away one of those elements and I don't think it's the same. No, that's yeah, exactly. The hidden gem can definitely happen at the writings level too. So that's another good point. And uh, Brian, are you going to go with Bali Barrio? Oh, for my hidden gem? Yeah. No, uh, although hats off to him. That was that was the great work as the alien. I actually went with Sir John Hurt or Ollivander, however you want to go with it. But his role as Kane, I really, really enjoyed reading about what he went through for the chestburster scene and, and everything on that. And I just think that, that when you've got a guy who is... I, I had a hard time placing him for a really long time, uh, having seen more of his work recently as an older actor. 
that going back to this, it wasn't this time around, but a previous rewatch of Aliens, say five years ago or so, I was like, God, that guy's familiar. And, you know, one of those things where you're refusing to look it up on IMDb because you've got to remember it yourself. And uh, so, yeah, my hidden gem on this for the time when it was made is, is Kane or Sir John Hurt. Now, this is a tight cast, which makes this task impossible because everybody's cast very well, in my opinion. But to play the game this is going to be a tough one. If you had to recast somebody and put somebody in their place, who would it be, Brian? If I had to do it, probably Veronica Cartwright. It's tough. I think it's because I don't like her character. Mm. Uh, I know I read that you know, she's supposed to be the audience's fear, but I just feel like you know the way that she freezes at the end, I just really hate that. And I think it costs her life and Parker's life. I don't, I don't really know who you would change it with, but there's just something about, I think it's just that I don't like that character and the way that they act in the film. So I don't think changing it would, changing who plays it would have really mattered, but there's my two cents. <laughs> Fry, what about you? I In my notes, I put recast. Nope. But if I absolutely positively had to recast somebody, and this is a cop-out because I feel like these characters are kind of interchangeable in a way, but if you made me, if you twisted my arm, I would say that you probably could get away with replacing Tom Skerritt with Chris Christopherson. And they look, at this time, they look almost identical. So I kind of got a little chuckle when I wrote this down because, like, like it, when pressed, I was like, replace him with his clone. Like, <laughs> so I, uh, and, and I like Chris Christopherson's acting ability too. So I think he could have done it. But it's one of those things where my, in terms of the hard copy, if they ever requested all of the notes for this show, you will see recast, nope. It would be interesting to hear that, that Southern drawl that Chris Christopherson has. I, I feel like he could have done it. Like, I think I would have been happy with a Chris Christopherson Dallas. Like, I'm fine with that. Yeah. Uh, but being such a Tom Skerritt fan, too, I, I feel like it would be only fair if I found a Chris Christopherson part somewhere out there in Blade or something and been like, replace him with Tom Skerritt to make all things even again. Right. <laughs> I'm going to replace Harry Dean Stanton. Uh, he's the uh, most casual and oldest member of the crew. And I'm going to put Robert Duvall in his place. Oh, yeah, like, oh that could be cool. Actually, if you had Duvall and then you also had Chris Christopherson, that'd be an interesting dynamic. You know what? I would just add them to the cast, you know? <laughs> yeah, just toss them. <laughs> we want this. What's your best shot of the movie, Brian? My favorite kind of cinematic moment would probably be the first reveal when they're inside the alien ship of that space jockey. It's something that, uh, unfortunately, I saw it before in a, in a book before I ever saw the movie. But I can remember just pouring over that picture and saying, what is that thing? And, and that looks awesome. And when I finally got to see the movie... That was one of my favorite parts, is, was just seeing that. I think there's an awe factor, a little awe, you know, to, to seeing that and thinking. It sets your mind reeling, wondering, what is that? What's going on? It kind of sets the tone for the rest of the movie. There, there's no rules about what these aliens can be, could, could look like. It's a big part of Prometheus, too, them coming back to that. Exactly, and, and that's one of my favorite scenes from Prometheus is when they turn on that star chart in that same room and you see that star chart and then at the end when he actually gets in that suit and gets into that jockey position and the ship takes off. Those are probably my two favorite scenes in that movie. Yeah, Fry, what's your best shot? The first shot when Tom Skerritt goes into the computer system, Mother, 
Um, I remember as a kid, I thought that was the coolest room ever. And <laughs> I saw this before I saw 2001 Space Odyssey. So like, I was really, really into it. And then going back to what you guys were talking about, that AI kind of piece or the, uh, you know, the visual chart, you know, all of that, that sort of thing, like across all sci-fi genres, I really enjoy that. So whether it's, you know, mother in this, or I, I just feel like there's so many iconic AIs out there that you end up rooting for. So you're, but you're going with the white room with all the frustratingly unlabeled lights and buttons. I was like, who can use this room? There's no labels on anything. I noticed this when I watched it this time around, but at least in one point where it goes through, there are labels on buttons. I don't know if that's just a, a, a something that's come in, maybe in the director's cut or something like that. Maybe. Oh, okay. So they are labels. But there are la- there are labels in some of this in this thing. My best uh, shots, and this, to me, I kind of alluded to this earlier. To me, this movie lives in Ripley in that moment where she needs to get to her escape pod. And the xenomorph is on the loose, and she's got less than five minutes to get there. And she's the only survivor at this point. And she's uh, making her way, and she's going down a, a hallway. And there's a single point perspective that shoots her. And the, there's this beautiful darkness through the whole movie. This movie keeps you very uneasy throughout the movie. It then builds tension through the, the darkness. And like nobody would ever build a spaceship that was so poorly lit and then send it out into space, but they did. And so this dark, dark guts of the ship are here and it sets the mood and then you've got the strobe light going on and off and you see ripley's face like sheer determination with the flamethrower in her hand and this is alien in a nutshell for me now best scene in the movie brian i think my favorite scene is the actual cane chestburster scene it's a good choice it's so iconic i mean it's one of the scariest moments in Cinema history. I mean, I just didn't see this coming the first time I saw it. It really took me off guard. And I had seen Spaceballs and I didn't know that was coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had even seen Aliens first. And, you know, one of the first things when they get in there and they find those people cocooned on the wall, one of them comes out of there. And, I, and to me, that wasn't even as grisly as the one in Alien with Kane. They did such a good job of disarming you, too. Like, he's been in a life-threatening situation, and then he feels better, and he's... Come on, the food's not that bad. Yeah, like, he wants to eat, and, like, they're having a very casual conversation, and boy, like, cut like that. He's flipping out. And one of, one of the things about rewatching that scene that I found interesting was, if you watch Ash, Ash won't take his eyes off Kane. He knows something's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, he's curious. Those, those, those androids are so, like... I, what happens if I put this drop in this drink? What happens if I let this guy go eat dinner with everybody else? I'm interested. Like He kind of makes excuses whenever Ripley asks about what he's found. Because if you think about, he's an android, so he's going to be super smart. He sees this thing that's put something down his throat. He knows something's in there, and he knows something's going to happen. Yep. Those androids, they're experimenters. Y- yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I wouldn't want to hang out with an android. <laughs> um, just just, just Bishop. Uh, uh, just be, oh, and data i I'd, I'd hang out with data now fry what's your best scene uh my best scene is the android fight and all those involved like i just thought that was such a cool action sequence of you know starts off with ridley kind of getting beat up and then others come to her aid and then his head falling off backwards but still fighting and the weird like 
pectoral grip maneuver he uses on Parker. And I'm just like, oh, that looks like it's awful. You know, like all of the, the aspects that go into that fight, I thought was a really good scene. And he's so creative with how he wants to kill her. I've never seen anybody roll up a magazine and shove it in somebody's mouth and say like, I'm going to kill you with this magazine roll. Yeah. That was odd, but it was... It... Malfunction, malfunction, kill with magazine. Yeah. My best scene is going to be the alien showdown with Ripley in the pod after they've escaped or after they think they've escaped ripley realizes after she strips down to her undies that she uh is not alone in there and then that's a very vulnerable moment for her and so she wants to get into a spacesuit and eject this alien out into space and she's even got the harpoon ready to roll too just for a backup and she needs it and there is so much tension in this scene i love it agreed mm-hmm. change one thing and only one thing brian uh I have three things. <laughs> <laughs> What's the number one thing? I think the number one thing to me that's kind of takes you out of the magic is Ash's head when they plug it back in. It's so uh, it's it's really poor. The, from what I understand, they did a, a perfect cast of Ian Holmes' face, and as they were doing the set or setting up the scene and stuff like that, or it, just sitting in the shop whatever they made it out of shrunk. And so it didn't really look like him. So you have this awkward scene where you have this head that doesn't really look like him and someone passes before the camera. And, and then when they move back away, it's Ian home. And that kind of is a little bit too jarring to me. If I would have taken the extra day or two and redone it right and got a better face. What are your runner ups though? Out of curiosity. Okay. Well, one of yours, sorry to say, is, is, is in part of the scene that you, is your favorite scene. So maybe I need to watch it again, but I, I've, I just don't understand when she gets in that suit, comes out there and the aliens are starting to come out. She sees it starts to come out and she purposefully turns away from it long enough for it to come up behind her to where she looks out the side and sees it's right there. And I've never really understood why she does that. I don't know if it might just be a fear thing where she doesn't want to actually look at it. I think she needs to be facing she needs to be facing the buttons at the console to enable the vacuum to happen, to blast out that panel. Okay. I, I don't think she can face it with the harpoon gun aiming at it and still be able to pull off the maneuver where she's blowing out the side wall like she's hoping to. Okay. Yeah, it might be something I need to just watch again, but I, I thought that was a little strange last time I watched it. Then my last one... I just think Dallas's death is a little weak. You have all these tunnels and all those things closing in, and then all of a sudden they're like, he, he's right there, he's right there, and you're just, I just feel like that was a little weak. Would you prefer him to, like, falter, like, trip, drop his gun or something like that? Well, I think he kind of, I think he kind of does that. He kind of, like, leaves his flamethrower there or something, and I just felt like, I don't know, I just felt like... It could have been, it could have been a more dramatic death. Right. I think the only caveat I would put to that is I think they were still not – they were before the line where they were selling out on showing the alien. Like he does that one one little turnaround where you see its face momentarily before he drops everything. And I mean I'll be honest. Unless you're – you know, or even if you're a space marine, I think if you turned, turned around with your light and had that right up in your face, I'd drop everything and probably pee too. <laughs> Well, see, I, I would have backed up against one of those doors that I knew it was had shut behind me and just wait for it to come. But he just kind of... Oh, there's that rational brain. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that's what I have to attribute it to is maybe panic. That's all I can think. I just kind of wish he had hung around a bit longer. But of course, that's a plot point. You got to get rid of him so that Sigourney takes over. What's your one thing that you want to change in this movie? Fry, do you need Bill Pullman in this? Sorry, Bill Paxton. Do, nope. do you need Bill Paxton in this? <laughs> 
Now, uh, it, this is in my in my notes. This is always right under my recast, and it also has change one colon nope. So, uh, I, yeah, I th- this is this movie is so good. Like, I feel like this is one of those unstable things where you're like, but we could change this, and then when you do, it all comes toppling down. So, um, yeah, I think I'm not touching this one with a 10-foot pole. Okay. You're being too gentle, I think. You should uh, mix it up. <laughs> I might change one thing. It's actually going to be the spacesuits that they use. They're ridiculously uh, hot. They don't have any vents in them. They're condensated over all the time. And the actors passed out or nearly passed out in every case. And Ridley Scott didn't put any vents or any mechanisms to help the actors be cool until, uh, you know, until his kids uh, struggled out there uh, in that same scene that I told you about, like where they were in the space jockey scene and they're using smaller actors and uh, the spacesuits were horribly uncomfortable for everybody. So don't do that. Stop being mean to your actors and, and uh, <laughs> treat them like human beings and give them spacesuits. Cause uh, the, the lights on studio, you don't know this, but I mean like it's over a hundred degrees in there. It, it looks like it's a cold icy planet, but the reality is it's super hot. And they're also in these hot, non-breathing heavy suits. So that's my change. One thing. That's probably uh, me tipping my hand for a very good rating. (laughs) I I picked on a piece of wardrobe. (laughs) Best quote of the movie, Brian. You have my sympathies. Ah, yes. I don't think he really meant it, though. I do have a runner-up. Go for it. You are my lucky star. Nice. Fry, what's your best quote? I think if I'm being really honest, this this movie isn't really full of what I would call great lines, like iconic. I think it's very well-written I just think it's it's kind of short on the iconic lines department. There are a few you can toss out there for the sake of it, but I don't think it's a, full of what I would call recognizable. Like, oh, that's from Alien. I think I'll go with if I had if just one thing that I enjoyed. So I'm gonna go with. We think we should discuss the bonus situation. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's good. Yeah. I'm going to go with another Ash line. They demanded of him what the mother said. He said, I thought it was pretty clear. Bring back life form. Priority one. All the priorities rescinded. And it's just like this moment of like, whoa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This was a lot of fun. Brian, is there anything you want to plug? One is called the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust, which is a, a group in, in Africa. They look for elephants and other animals that have been illegally trapped or injured and help rescue them. And then the other one is the Orangutan Foundation International. Both of these are on Facebook. And if you want to donate to them, you can reach out to them through Facebook. Orangutan Foundation International helps rescue orphaned orangutans and rehabilitate them and put them back in the wild. That is a great cause. And glad you called attention to that. This is the conclusion of the show. This is where we give a rating. Brian, on a five-star scale with half-star intervals, what would you rate Alien? Before I give my rating, there's a, an internet meme that I've seen passed around that I, I wanted to share that was about this movie because I think it's awesome. And it's written by a guy that uh, I can't remember his name, but he, he's a movie reviewer. And this is how it goes. He says, so I've been writing reviews for about 10 years. My wife's review of Alien puts everything I've ever written to shame. And she says, and I quote, Alien is a movie where nobody listens to the smart woman and they all die except for the smart woman and her cat. Four stars. but actually i would give this five stars like we were talking about it's really hard to change anything about this movie you know really had to nitpick uh, on some stuff to even you know come up with things to talk about you know recasting people or changing one thing about the movie it was hard yeah that's a good sign of a five star for sure 
Now, Fry, what is your rating on a five-star scale? Uh, this is a five all the way. I this this movie is is as close to perfect as a movie can get for me. Just the the blending of genres and the cast and the feel. This is this is a truly great film. I'm with you. I'm with you both. It's a it's a straight five across the board on this one. It's a it's a rare thing for this show. So, yep, all fives across the board. I'm with you guys. It's a it's a wonderful horror movie. It's a great science fiction movie. It's one of those things where, like Brian said, you just can't improve it and that's when you know you've done a perfect job i'm gonna go as far to say it's my favorite ridley scott movie i know brian you're an, you're a blade runner guy mm-hmm. this is really high on my list and i never go too far without watching it with good reason brian do you want to help me pick a movie for next week yeah let's go we're gonna go to the world of sundance let's go appreciate the independent side of the spectrum so these are all sundance movies option one all the Real Girls, a small-town love story of a young man with a reputation for womanizing and his best friend's sister. Option two, Blood Simple from 1984. A rich but jealous man hires a private investigator to kill his cheating wife and her lover. However, nothing's as simple when blood is involved. Option three, Winter's Bone from 2010. An unflinching Ozark mountain girl hacks through dangerous social terrain as she hunts down her drug-dealing father while trying to keep her family intact. Uh, I've got to go Winter's Bone all the way. Uh, this is a this is another fantastic film. Can't wait to do it with you, man. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. You were a great guest. We had a lot of fun. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. To all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Those reviews help the show. It's the number one thing you can do to help us out. It lets us know how we can make the show better. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us at, at movie underscore retro. And email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com if you want to engage with us or if you want to be on the show. Providing this podcast is fun but not free. We invite you to support us at Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. Any contributions we'll use to make the show better. We appreciate that. As always, be good to each other. Thank you for listening. And watch more movies. Brian? Commence Operation Vacu Suck. <laughs>